Have you ever stood nervously outside a door at which you had to force yourself to knock it? Maybe it was at school and you'd been sent to the headmaster. Perhaps it was knocking on someone's door to try and share the gospel with them and you just had no idea who or what you would find on the other side. Maybe it was at work and, and you felt you had to go to, to your boss to speak about an issue and you were fairly sure it wouldn't go down well. Perhaps you had to go and see someone and the last time you saw them you'd had a big argument and you were nervous as you stood at the door. But whatever the situation, it took everything you had not to turn on your heels and run. But summoning all the strength that was in you, you, you knocked and you anxiously waited. Should that be what it's like when we come to God in prayer? Fearful, full of dread, unsure of the reception we'll get. After all, even the heavens aren't pure in God's sight. He, he charges even the sinless angels with error. And we don't have to think for too long to realise that we are far from sinless. All of us uh, today, we, we've done and thought things that are unworthy of God. Even today, we have all sinned. Surely, if we can still come to God in prayer at all, the best we could hope for would be to creep ashamedly into God's presence. If God will, will listen to us at all, surely his patience is growing thin. But amazingly, the message of these verses tonight is something we could never have imagined. Because we're told to knock on the door with confidence. We're told to pray boldly. And so tonight we're going to look at three reasons why we can pray boldly. One from each of these three verses. And firstly, tonight we can pray boldly because our great high priest has passed through the heavens. We can pray boldly because our great high priest has passed through the heavens. Human beings seem to have an inbuilt realisation that if there is a God, we can't just come to him directly. That we can't make it into his presence under our own steam. So from the dawn of time, men have offered sacrifices and appointed holy men to come between them and the God or gods that they've worshipped. But while much of this has been superstition and human invention, in the Jews we see a sacrificial system and a religious priesthood which were instituted by God himself. The nations around had knock-off versions of various quality, but the Jews knew that they had the real thing, or at least what we could call the, the officially sanctioned replica, because what happened at the earthly tabernacle and temple were, we're told, a, a, a replica of what was happening in heaven. And the Jewish system, it reached its peak in, in one man, the high priest. In the lead up to an election, politicians who are looking for our vote try to spell out how they've represented the interests of their constituents in the past and how they plan to do so in the future. And if you were to vote for someone based on the promises they had made, surely you'd want to keep a close eye on what they did if they got elected. 
How were they voting on certain issues? Were they representing your interests like they claimed they would? Well, when the Jews saw their high priest ministering with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel engraved on stones attached to what he was wearing, they knew that their interests were being represented. And their interests were being represented not simply before men, but before God. And for Jews who become Christians, one of the hardest things about their new religion was not having a high priest that they could see. Uh, Their Jewish opponents would have picked up on it. What sort of religion are you following now? You don't even have a high priest. But to these Jewish converts facing scorn from family and friends, perhaps wondering if they'd made the wrong decision, verse 14 comes with such great reassurance. We have a high priest. In fact, more than that, we have a great high priest. One of the aims of the letter to the Hebrews is to show these converted Jews that they haven't lost anything by becoming Christians that there's no privilege that they or their children had under the Old Testament that we don't have under the New. But these verses don't stop at showing that Christianity isn't missing anything that Judaism had. They go on to show that it's better in every way. And to do that, Hebrews uses the language of the Day of Atonement. In the Jewish religion, the most important person of all was the high priest. And the most important day of all was the day of atonement. This was the one day in the year when the high priest would go through the the curtain into the holy place or the holy of holies, which represented the presence of God on earth. In the Old Testament, as well as the weekly Sabbath, you also had, had special days which were called Sabbaths. Whatever day of the week they happened on, you even had a Sabbath year. And one of these high days, the highest of the days, was the Day of Atonement. But what was only pictured by the Jewish high priest was done for real by Jesus. Jesus went into heaven itself And so verse 14, the reason that Christians don't have a high priest on earth is because he has finished his work on earth. He's now passed through the heavens into the immediate presence of God. The Jewish high priest, by by going into the Holy of Holies, he only symbolically passed through the heavens. But Jesus went through the real heavens into heaven, into the very presence of God. And so even if at times it seems like your prayers don't go any higher than the ceiling, if your prayers are in Jesus' name, you can be confident that they will go right into the very presence of God. They won't bounce off the outer limits of heaven. Like Jesus himself, they will pass through the heavens. And if you are reluctant to pray because of your sins, then the message of this verse is that it's not about you. It's not about you. 
about 10 years ago we were at Alton Towers with Carla's family. Uh, Campbell would have been in primary school and Carla's sister Catherine got a special red armband uh, because she had special needs and and that meant that she could jump the queue for any ride Uh, and whenever she did that she could bring up to four people with her. It didn't matter if the four people were perfectly healthy in every way. Uh, There was no medical exam. There were no disapproving looks. Because we were with Catherine, we could march on in. And in the same way, your prayers are heard and accepted by God. Not depending on your spiritual condition, as long as you're not harbouring unconfessed sin. Rather, it depends on who you're with. And if you're with Jesus, you can go right into the throne room of heaven and be welcomed with open arms. When God was telling the Israelites about the Passover and the boys and girls knew the story, God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over. Not when I see you. What mattered wasn't how someone felt. It didn't matter whether they had been following God more closely or, or more, more at a distance than the person next door. What mattered was the blood on the doorposts. And when God looks at you, he sees the blood. In Jesus, you're covered, no matter how you feel. Do you think you're not worthy to pray to God? In many ways, you're right. But it's not about you. Your bill has been paid for you. And so you can pray boldly. So the first reason to pray boldly, our great high priest has passed through the heavens and he brings our requests with him. The second reason to pray boldly is that our great high priest can sympathise with our weaknesses. Verse 15 now. Our great high priest can sympathise with our weaknesses. If one of your closest friends suddenly became famous, how would you feel about them? Well, hopefully if their rise to fame was for something good, you'd be pleased for them. But you'd probably also be wondering at the back of your mind, are they going to forget about me? Are they going to move on from their old friends? Well, the writer here anticipates that sort of reaction after the glorious picture he's just left us with uh, of Jesus passing through the heavens. Maybe now Jesus is so exalted that he'll forget what life was like on earth. Maybe like the cupbearer who forgot about Joseph, he'll forget the rest of us left back here. Well, in verse 15, the writer denies that possibility in the strongest possible terms. Do you notice the double negative? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. It couldn't be any more emphatic. If Jesus was only a man, he would have been able to sympathize with us to some extent, but he wouldn't have been able to do much for us. On the other hand, if the Son of God hadn't taken on flesh, we would have had no problem doubting his power and ability. But perhaps we would have doubted his ability to sympathize and to understand. But amazingly, because Jesus is God and man, he can do both. He's able to sympathize, 
but also able to do something about it. And there's nothing you can go through that he doesn't understand, that he can't sympathise with. Now some would object and point out that there are things that Jesus didn't experience when he was on earth. Jesus never suffered being paralysed or ending up in a wheelchair. He never went through a divorce. He didn't know what it was like to experience a miscarriage. And yet behind all these experiences, there's always something that Jesus did face. Isolation, abandonment, grief. And he felt all those and more to a deeper level than anyone who has ever lived. When you have two pianos in the same room and a note is struck on one, the same note will respond on the other. It's known as sympathetic resonance. And whatever we go through in life, there will be no sad melody, there will be no minor chord that doesn't bring forth sympathetic resonance in Jesus. The same heart beats in Jesus in heaven as when he stood and cried at Lazarus' grave and when he wept over Jerusalem. We weep in the face of death. We weep in the face of unbelief and disinterest. Jesus did both. But what the verse seems to have in focus is not suffering in general, but temptation in particular. When we speak of him sympathising with our weaknesses. Because in, in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, the weakness of the priests that is mentioned there is clearly a reference to sin. And so when you're tempted, this is a huge encouragement to run to Jesus and not away from him because he knows what you're going through. He too was tempted. But some would raise another objection here. Can Jesus really identify with me if he never gave in to temptation? Well, C.S. Lewis says that there's a silly idea going around that good people don't know what temptation is. Using good people in inverted commas. But in fact, Lewis says only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. As Lewis says, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving into it. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down on the ground. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. In fact, Lewis says that there's a sense in which bad people know very little about badness. They've lived a a sheltered life by always giving in. But because Jesus was the only man who never yielded to temptation, he's also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. And he can sympathise. So we should pray because our great high priest has passed through the heavens. But his exalted position doesn't mean he's forgotten about his friends. Instead, the fact that even in heaven, Jesus is both God and man. It means that he hasn't forgotten what life is like here on earth. And so pray boldly. 
Because your great high priest can sympathise with your weaknesses. And the third and final reason to pray boldly is that we come to a throne of grace. We see that in verse 16. Pray boldly because we come to a throne of grace. Now, throne of grace must be near the top of the list of things people use in churches uh, without ever really explaining what it means. Uh, And yet it it is a good biblical phrase, uh, which if we understand it right, is a wonderful picture of prayer. One obvious thing it reminds us of is that the one who we come to sits on a throne. Yes, wonderfully, it's a throne of grace. But it's still a throne. And so although we come boldly, we're not to come brashly. Although we're to come confidently, we're not to come carelessly. We pray to our Father, but our Father in heaven. And like people coming to an earthly throne, one of our big concerns should be, how's the king going to react? Think of Queen Esther in the Bible. Even though she was queen, the the king had declared that anyone who went to him in the inner court would be killed unless he held out the golden scepter. And so when Esther was eventually convinced by Mordecai to go into the king's presence, first of all, she got all her friends to fast three days and three nights. Her final words before going into him were, If I perish, I perish. But how differently, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Queen Esther coming to the king, she knew she was coming to a throne, but she did not know if it would be a throne of grace or not. Uh, But we can know that. And yet we can still struggle to come with confidence John Calvin said in his day that one of the evidences that the gospel had disappeared onto the papacy was, well, how would you fill in the blank? One of the evidences that the gospel had disappeared was people living wicked lives. Well, well, that was true, no doubt. But, but he said one of the evidences that the gospel had disappeared was that people doubted whether God was ready to accept them or whether he was angry with them. When the gospel disappears, people, they doubt. They have no confidence in coming to God. Always wondering, have they done enough? And surely today, even many Christians find themselves in a similar position. Perhaps you do. Perhaps as you pray, you can't help wondering in the back of your mind whether God is angry with you. Maybe because of of how things are going in your life. But the good news of the Bible is that whenever you come to God in Jesus' name, he won't refuse you. His scepter will always be stretched out to you. A throne is a place from which both judgment and mercy go out. But because Jesus has already paid for your sins, then it would be unjust of God to hold those sins against you. Spurgeon says it well, we might have trembled if we'd been bidden to come to a throne of justice. We might have been afraid to come to a throne of power alone, but we need not hesitate to come to a throne of grace. Do you hesitate this evening? You need not. It is a throne of grace.
So come boldly. Think of a toddler learning to talk. You're delighted to hear their first stumbling words. You're not going to jump in if they break the rules of grammar. Their parents will let them prattle away contentedly, even if other people can't really understand them. Well, that's the freedom and confidence we should have as we speak to our Heavenly Father. Don't hold back because of feelings of shame or unworthiness. To take another illustration from the story of Esther, when evil Haman is sentenced to death, his face is covered. His guilt meant that he would no longer be allowed to look in the king's face. But to come with courage is to have that shame and guilt taken away. And Paul says we can with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. As we've already thought about in the Old Testament, the high priest could enter God's presence once a year on the Day of Atonement. But even then, even only on that one day, there were strict instructions. In two different places, the high priest is warned what to do so that he isn't struck down dead. But in Christ, we can come freely and confidently. And what should we ask for when we're there? Mercy and grace. Mercy for our past failure, grace for present and future needs. The two words really sum up all God's gifts, mercy and grace. And he won't be slow in giving them, but they'll come exactly when we need them. And so as we come to pray this week, As we come to pray this evening, as we go to our beds, we have three encouragements to do so. Our great high priest has passed through the heavens, and so he can bring our requests right into heaven's throne room. Secondly, our great high priest can sympathise with our weaknesses. The person beside us may not understand us. The, The closest person to us in this world may not understand, but Jesus does. And finally, we come to a throne of grace. Without Christ, we couldn't have got anywhere near it. But because of him, God's arms are open wide to us and his scepter is held out. What privileges we have, brothers and sisters. So let us pray boldly. Amen. We'll close by singing from Psalm 99, Psalm 99a on page 233. Psalm 99a, page 233, the first five verses. The tune will be 165. So Psalm 99a, the page number is 233, and the tune is 165. In verses 1 to 4, we sing of the awesomeness of God, but in verse 5, we sing of a God who can be approached by his priests. Verse five, O people, or verse four, O people, let the Lord our God by you exalted be uh, an awesome God. But verse five, Moses and Aaron, his priests, they called upon his name and he answered them. An awesome God, but a God who can be approached by priests. And here's the application. If God answered the prayers of sinful human beings, how much more will he answer the prayers of our great high priest, his own beloved son? So Psalm 99a, 1 to 5, tune 165, we'll stand to sing praise.